Welcome to the Help One Child podcast. This is the show that equips adoptive and foster parents with information from experts in the fields of trauma and attachment. Our hope is that with every episode, you will find helpful insights and practical parenting tips. My name is Kristen Wynn Reyes, and I am your host today as we cover the topic of applying the reasonable and prudent parent standard while fostering. Our guest today is Emily Kaiser, a licensed clinical social worker and a very valued Help One Child trainer. She has um, contributed tonight's podcast, and we hope will contribute a blog soon. Emily is currently launching the private adoption program for Koinonia Family Services. She has worked for the agency since 2009, primarily as the supervisor of the Sacramento Office's Adoption and Foster Care Programs. She is passionate about serving and preserving adoptive families. Emily and her husband, Greg, married in 2008. They're celebrating an anniversary this year, um, this month, and they began their journey as foster adoptive parents in 2015. She wears many hats as a social worker, an adoptive mom, a transracial adoptive parent, a bio mom, and she's even an auntie to an adopted niece and nephew. Emily, we are so glad to have you today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Kristen. I'm glad to be here. Well, let's um, hear a little bit more about you, Emily. Can you tell us um, more about your professional work and what you do with families? Yes, I began with Quinnia Family Services in 2009 in the residential program. So working with uh, primarily youth that were in the program uh, as a part of rehabilitation uh, coming from juvenile hall, uh, probation youth. Uh, um, Then I spent most of the next decade in Sacramento, uh, like you said, supervising foster care and adoption program. and at this point in time, the last couple of years, my focus has been on developing our private adoption families um, program. And so the cases that are outside of foster care, um, I have a couple of expectant moms uh, right now, young, young women that I'm working with that are um, actually, you know, real young, maybe 20 years old. One is uh, still in foster care and pregnant and making uh, the choice to place uh, for adoption. And so it's part of my role to support them and to find the family that they're looking for. So just developing that program in the last couple of years and expanding it to our various offices as the months go on. Wow, you have a vast experience. And that's exciting that you're both um, through your family and then professionally, um, very familiar with foster care and adoption. So we're lucky to have you. Can you um, jump right into our topic tonight and explain to our foster and kinship parents what the reasonable and prudent parent standard is and who uses it? Because I recall being at um, different foster parent association meetings and there being a lot of confusion and conversation and questions about needing clarification. So that's why we've asked you here today for Help One Child to help our foster resource kinship parents get clarification. Yes, and it is a big topic. Uh, it influences the daily life of, of resource parenting. Uh, so an important distinction is that this is not 
specifically applicable for adoptive families. Uh, this is for resource parents that are caring for foster children, uh, kinship parents that are considered resource parents caring for relatives that are foster children. So that's specific in terms of who it's for. Um, reasonable and prudent parent standard, RPPS, it's almost about 20 years of uh, legislation that's been built on uh, to, to be what it is today. And, you know, there was a point in time where it sure seemed like everybody that was going to be around a foster child was going to need to be life scanned. Um, or just a lot of uh, barriers if you were going to have the youth involved in extracurricular activities or soccer practice, then you yourself uh, directly as the caregiver, foster parent, needed to be the one providing supervision. But really what we know is that your um, your 10-year-old, your 12-year-old, you could, you could trade off with the other parents that you know well that are part of the team. They could look out for your kid on Tuesdays and look out for theirs on Thursdays at practice. And so... The, the, the goal of the reasonable and prudent parent standard is really to be able to provide our foster children and youth with a more normal life experience while they're in out of home care. Um, it empowers the, the caregiver, the resource parent to encourage the youth to be able to participate in extracurricular activities. Um, it allows for the, the caregiver to make reasonable, prudent, sensible parenting decisions. Um, without having to receive permission from a social worker or juvenile court for every little thing. Um, and so then that removes those barriers um, and it supports with the retention of our foster um, parents because, and I know I'm interchangeably uh, foster parents and resource parents, you know, one of the challenges uh, for, for many foster parents is they decide to no longer be uh, foster parents is they say it's not may not be the kids, it's the paperwork, it's the process, it's the bureaucracy of it all, right? And so this is a way that it removes some of those barriers and helps us to retain a high quality um, resource parents so that they can feel less frustrated by the bureaucracy of the system of the constant approval, um, you know, needing to be uh, obtained for every little thing. So it also reduces, right, social worker time to have to give permission for, for everything and it's respecting the rights of our kids to be able to participate in activities and be like a normal kid as much as possible while they're experiencing foster care. I love how you explain that. And I love that the focus is on the child and helping them have as much experience of normalcy as is possible when away from, from, their home and family that was known to them previously. So um, that's really helpful. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard such a wonderful um, description and the goal of it. So I love that. Kristen, it's amazing sometimes if we just know the background behind the story. <laughs> it Absolutely. gives so much context and understanding. Absolutely. I love that. That's why we're here today. <laughs> and I'm glad our listeners are um, getting the benefit of this too. How can um, the prudent parent law also be used when it applies to respite, overnights, childcare, those times that resource parents do need someone else to um, look after their child more formally? Absolutely. So with regard to the care and supervision, I find that it is helpful to talk about this with resource parents related to the title of the care provider, the state, uh, California Department of Social Services. CDSS has provided uh, titles 
for uh, what these, whether it's a babysitter, alternative caregiver, respite writer, and then definitions for those. And so I find if we talk about those with regard to the length of time that you're needing, that could be helpful uh, for families. So if you're looking for less than 24 hours and it's just on an occasional basis, you know, the occasional date night, not the every Friday night date night, that's regular <laughs> and ongoing, but just the occasional um, less than 24 hour babysitter, this could be uh, at your home as the resource home or at the babysitter's home. And this is where you would apply the reasonable and prudent parent standard, the RPPS, in determining it. Um, there's not an age restriction on who you use as uh, the babysitter, as long as they have the maturity and experience and skill needed to provide the level of care uh, for the youth, including you know handling meds if needed. They don't have to have CPR or first aid, though it's recommended. Um, they got to be able to get in contact with you as the resource parent uh, if it's needed. And uh, like I said, it can be in either home. But it, that's if it's, you know, safe and appropriate um, place for the children to be. And so you get to use your good judgment as the resource parent on who you use as a babysitter. They don't have to be life scans. This can be your mother-in-law. This can be, right, um, your uncle, your neighbor, your best friend. For the alternative caregiver, this is a category for when it's going to be longer than 24 hours. So on an occasional basis still, not regularly scheduled. Um, it can be over 72 hours, uh, the alternative caregiving with approval from a county social worker or probation officer, if that's what's applicable in, in your kiddo's case. And this could be in the resource home or the alternative caregiver's home. Um, you're still going to use your sensible parenting judgment and who this person is. Usually, like I said, relative or close friend, someone you know well, someone that you trust well, um, someone that knows the, the child and you to um, they have the experience and skill to provide, including handling meds as needed. This is someone that needs to be 18 years or older. Um, first aid and CPR is encouraged uh, to have, though not required. Uh, and they, of course, must be able to get in top contact with the resource parents. Um, and if it's at one of the, we know that the resource home is safe, right? Because the resource parents know all too well what the home inspections look like. But <laughs> the alternative caregiver, if the, if the caregiving is going to be at the alternative caregiver's home, then the resource parent needs to know that that house is safe and appropriate for the child needs as well. That third category I mentioned, respite provider. So this would be typically up to 72 days, although it can be 14 days in a given month, as long as there is prior approval from the county social worker probation officer and so this category is the respite provider um, which could be occurring in the resource home though most likely in the respite care provider's home um, the county social worker like i said needs to give the approval it's going to be over 72 hours um, the you know same qualifications as before they got to know how to get a hold of you now a lot of uh, agencies have the requirement so if you are have your resource family approval with a foster family agency, you might find that they would prefer or require that you only use other respite homes within the same agency that way uh, for, for respite and not using a respite provider with another agency. It's not always the case, but that is a common practice so that the agency can ensure um, that they know the respite provider, that they, that they are cleared and in good standing. Agencies don't communicate with one another due to confidentiality about background information and all sorts of information about uh, other respite, um, respite or resource parents. And so 
for some, it's important to just build the relationships within your own network. The last one that I'll talk about that I hadn't mentioned yet is just this like routine on ongoing care. So like whether it's two hours every day after school or it's every Friday, right? And this would be, there's multiple options for locations. Um, this could be even licensed daycare or after school programs, clubs, established programs, scouts, where there's adult supervision, you know, these, these kinds of um, categories an individual providing care for the, um, the children of a resource family in, a, in addition to their own children. Um, there are certain, you know, standards from the state um, as to how many kids they're allowed to provide, you know, care for, for non-relatives and whether they need to be licensed or not. And so you want to pay attention to that as well. Um, again, first aid CPR is encouraged and it's got to have your contact info as the resource family. Um, but those are some of the categories. You know, some additional things to note just regard to supervision, you you can leave a foster child alone. Um, they've got to be at home alone, at least 10 years old, and you've got to use a lot of wisdom too. Um, but to determine if it's safe and appropriate, how long is it going to be? Are you just running around the corner to the neighbor's house, to the grocery stores? It's just occasional because um, it should just be on an occasional uh, basis in most um, situations. But they've got to know where the emergency numbers are and get in contact with you if needed. Um, so that's another thing to keep in mind. You can have a uh, foster youth that's old enough, and responsible, mature enough to be able to uh, babysit as well and, and be that occasional babysitter. So just something else to note as we talk about care and supervision. That's very, very informative. And um, just to follow up on that last part, when you talk about um, a foster youth who's old enough mature enough, responsible, being able to be a babysitter. Um, in the past, I heard it was um, discouraged that a foster youth would babysit another foster youth. So just to clarify, um, is there a recommendation like that? Or is it on a case by case basis, depending on the maturity and responsibility of the youth? Maturity and responsibility and desire. You know, <laughs> you yes. know um, which which really speaks to probably maturity and safety there, because if you have a youth that doesn't want to be babysitting, then they may not make mature and safe decisions while being required to do so. Um, but, you know, learning how to look after other kiddos, which, you know, a 15 year old watching a 10 year old is different than a 12 year old watching a two year old, right? And so there's so much to consider uh, with, you know, using wisdom and judgment and length of time as well, right? 20 minutes is different than two hours, but it's a life skill. So, so babysitting, right? Caregiving, um, it's, it's, it's like learning how to use knives and to cook and to do your laundry, right? And so to think of it as a life skill to encourage, it's a trade, right? You can become um, uh, you know, nanny or, you know, professionally be able to get into caregiving. And so it provides experience as well. If they're not interested, I wouldn't have them do it though. <laughs> I'd be, I'd be careful about what you try to force a foster child to do, um, a foster youth to do, um, that doesn't usually go well, but if it's a youth that's older and mature and responsible and you've known them for some time, I also wouldn't have your new placement doing it. Right. But they've been living with you for some time. Um, you could slowly build up the, the, the skills to be able to do that. 
Wonderful. I think that's a great example of using the prudent parent law and how um, there are nuances and you have to really know the child as well. And yeah, and checking in with your social worker, right? Um, especially if it's a social worker that's been working with this youth for a while. Yes. Um, and the youth is saying, this is something I want to do. Then absolutely, let's talk Let's talk with the other professionals involved about it. Wonderful. And um, when does a foster parent or kinship caregiver need to inform a parent? And when does the prudent parent law not require that? Yeah, well, let me know if you're thinking of anything specific there. Um, You know, the ACL, the the all-county letters and all-county information notices that are the the state notices about uh, the reasonable and prudent parenting standard aren't addressing a resource parent's obligation to talk to a biological parent or get approval for anything. So what are you thinking of specifically? So so I guess maybe a better way to ask that would be, um, when does the parent or kinship caregiver need to inform the social worker? And then it sounds like the social worker would be the go-between um, if there's something that the biological parent needs to approve, or it could sometimes be done at the social worker approval county level. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting now, having worked with so many counties across Northern California, um, and and in other areas of California, too, there are some areas that just county by county, and how described, sometimes it's social worker by social worker, um, but how they have different, you know, practices in place uh, for what that looks like. So, yeah. For example, and it's not a part of RPPS, but one example that comes to mind is not to um, cut a foster youth's hair, right? That the the parent permission is a part of that. There are cultural implications with with hair and length and style. And so I think, you know, the thing to remember is, and you know, there's a distinction between whether you're at the beginning of a court case and this child just came to you and it's been recently removed or they've been with you for two years and you're just about to adopt. One of the things, the thing to remember is that as a resource parent, you are a highly trained, very much valued, in my opinion. (laughs) Um, I, I value you, the system may not, but you are in the legal sense, a, a, a volunteer and a reimbursed babysitter and it's harsh but it, it's it's better to know where you might fall on the totem pole than to be shocked you do the hardest work uh, in many ways you are the one there for the middle of the night for for all the daytime stuff for all the all the all the transitions and the challenges um but you have to know your role and your role as a, as a resource parent, you, you are essentially this long-term plan for babysitting. Um, the goal at the beginning of cases is, is most likely reunification. So it's good to check in. It's good to get permission. Um, it's also good to know that there are times where it's, it's good to just state, this is what we're planning to do. If this is a problem, let me know otherwise. <laughs> Say it that way to your county social worker who may be very busy um, and it would be easier for them to not reply if needed, but to only reply if it actually is needed. And so to be able to phrase your your questions and statements with that in mind. So you're not just waiting on someone that's very busy. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's the haircut comes to mind. Um, 
if there's something you're thinking of, but um, traveling is another area that comes to mind, which we can talk about in a moment, but there's our PPS really isn't addressing like receiving the biological parents permission. Right. Right. And like the haircut, I could think of examples like ear piercing or a tattoo, which, you know, we would hope youth under 18 in care are not getting. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, those kinds yeah. of things that become more permanent or like you said, could uh, impact or change something that's cultural or family valued um, like hair. Yeah, those are great examples. And um, I hope, you know, our veteran experienced foster parents and kinship providers are listening, but also our new ones, because um, so much of this can often be learned only through experience or the sharing of this wisdom, like the insights into just what you're recommending of emailing the social worker in such a way that you're informing, you're doing your due diligence to communicate and to um, make sure it's known and transparent, um, recognizing the county's role and your role, which, um, you know, pe people enter this, this um, important work and important role as parents um, for an interim period of time that is unknown. And, um, can have all kinds of hopes and expectations and dreams of permanency or forming a family, but keeping that goal of reunification as the first priority in mind uh, is so important or helping the child stay within the community or um, kinship provider uh, yeah. network from which they've come. If reunification isn't possible, um, our priorities and, and how that can all get interwoven. <laughs> so it's, it's great yes. to, to get this um, guidance uh, for our families. Is um, the prudent parent law by chance uh, something local? Is it more for like different counties? It's different or is it statewide federal? Where can our parents look to it in its full written format or even better? Is there a summarized bulleted cheat sheet a frequently asked questions list that uh, we could go to because as you're sharing, there's lots of nuances and lots of um, scenarios that may arise after we're already in it and not in the training, not listening to the podcast. <laughs> Where can we go to get that information? Yes. So um, California was actually uh, just a front runner in terms of helping to normalize the experience for foster youth. Um, but yes, there are some federal components, but the best place to look in terms of California uh, requirements is the Department of Social Services, the, the California Department, the CDSS uh, website. Uh, there is an all-county information notice uh, specifically when you just do Google, California, Prudent Parenting, CDSS, and there are a list of frequently, there's an eight-page uh, notice including a component of uh, frequently asked questions to be able to apply in scenarios about the occasional short-term babysitting and, you know, all of what we were talking about earlier. And so um, leaving a foster kid home alone, having a foster youth babysit a younger child in the home, um, you know, all, all, of, all of that component is in one place. And if we're able to uh, link it, I will send that to you, Kristen, and have that available as a resource if someone reaches out to you for it or however you would put it out there. 
Sounds great. Okay. Thank you, Emily. And I know it's not covered in the prudent parent standard, but a question that often comes up with our resource families is how to best navigate getting travel permission if uh, the family isn't seeking respite, but they want to include the child. They want to take the child out of town. Um, How might our parents and caregivers go about that? Yeah, which is great. I mean, and speaking of normalizing an experience, a part of childhood can be family vacations, for example. Um, You know, like I was saying earlier, where you're at in the court process, and if this is the beginning of a case, it's a very active reunification, and kiddo is having visits three times a week with their one parent and three times a week with the other, and, you know, um, twice a week with grandma wherever they may be at in reunification journey, or if you're, you know, two years later and it's a once once uh, visit um, and you're, you know, just getting ready to finalize adoption. So that can vary what your experience is in terms of getting approval because um, you are supposed to be able to have the judicial, the judge's approval for going out of state. Um, in my experience, there are, there are times that when you are just driving across the state border to, uh, say, Oregon or Nevada, that a county worker, and it's a short time, has, has given the okay. And you know what? You have their okay in writing. So whatever, however you feel about that. <laughs> um, yes. And there are other times where, you know, it, some are, you know, very clear, no, no, we need the court's approval. Uh, which I would say plan at least getting that approval six weeks at a minimum in advance working on that, um, if not even sooner. To be able to stay overnight um, out of county. So some people, you may live on the county border. You're like, well, I'd be my grocery shopping just across the county. Yeah, that's fine. But when you're when you are now staying, it's more than 24 hours. You're staying overnight out of county. Um, you are supposed to have the county social worker approval because... Um, remember, this isn't actually your child. They may feel like the child in every way, um, but as a dependent, as a ward, they are not actually your, your kiddo, uh, even if you are nearing adoption. And so remembering that this county social worker is the legal guardian, uh, is the, the authorized representative for this child. Um, I do I do find that it is helpful. Um, they need to know like where you're staying, the address, and the best contact number, and the dates. And so... Being able to provide, I can't tell you how many times I've sent an email on behalf of my family uh, that I'm working with and, and, and to a busy county social worker just saying, hey, here's the dates, here's right everything I just said. And, you know, if this is going to be, um, if there's any challenges with this or if there's a problem, let me know. And then they don't really have to respond. It's just this implicit permission. Um, if, they, if there is a problem, they know that it's on them. They, you know, respond. That's not going to work. Here's why. Uh, but you're making the job a little bit easier for them to not have to say, you know, do I have your permission? Say, no, I'm, I'm assuming I have your permission unless you know otherwise. Um, the thing that I was bringing up about where you're at in the court process is how many visits are you missing, right? So when you try and go on family vacation for two weeks and you've just missed nine visits, <laughs> you know, for that kiddo, for that parent, that's, it's probably not going to work out well. The, the amount of coverage to try and make those visits up before going on that trip or after, um, that can be a barrier. Uh, the parent may feel like, wait a minute, this is my child. I don't want them doing family vacation with them. I'd rather them go to a, a respite home. So um, I'm entitled legally to see my child and visit with them. And so there can be, you know, some of the things, especially earlier on in the case where I'd say, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe traveling and traveling for a significant length of time 
uh, that there is a lack of wisdom there and it may very well not be an approved request. This is also a child that might just need some space to adjust to your home, right? That's another part about it being earlier in the case to consider uh, versus being later on. Yes, that's really helpful. I think you mentioned the way of communicating it in an email is helpful for the social worker, but also for the resource parent so that you aren't just waiting on pins and needles like, when are they going to get back to me? When are they going to get back to me? And you can kind of proceed with your plan um, feeling empowered unless notified otherwise. And I think that's particularly a helpful approach when you do have um, a social worker who has a lot of cases and may not be able to get back to you in a timely manner. Um, yeah. So. And it's so helpful, Kristen, to have these things in writing too. Yes. Yes. Um, it's just, it's there. It's just plain English and it's in writing so that if there's any question, you know that you had your permission. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Um, do you have any last suggestions or uh, sharings about the prudent parent law and its application for foster and kinship parents? Resource parents, I know we use foster and resource interchangeably <laughs> these days so often. I think knowing that you can trust, you can trust your own good judgment that if there is like with the babysitting example, that if there is, you know, there are 12 year olds that I would let babysit before I'd let a 16 year old babysit. Right. But if you could just trust your, your own gut as you make sensible parenting decisions, um, as to whether that's a kiddo that you can leave at soccer practice to be watched by another parent, or you're like, you know what, I don't really know them that well. That doesn't seem like a good idea until we have a stronger bond relationship yet that you could, you could pause and listen to your gut um, in some of these areas in the same way that you would be if you were parenting uh, just your kiddos that weren't in foster care. Um, and so that that's that's advice. And, and, and to just bounce it off another foster parent. <laughs> that can be so helpful uh, as well because someone more experienced, if you're not connected to those that are more experienced, you got to do it because it's other, it's other foster parents uh, that know what they're doing. Uh, even may I dare say, so more than the social workers involved in your case. <laughs> right, right. Those those parents who've had the experience of the day in, day out, real parenting work and responsibility, yeah. but as the resource parent. Um, yeah. Approval You know level. what, Kristen? I know I've actually <laughs> been horrified at different times. I've had uh, social workers that have come to me saying, hey, I'm interested in, you know, adopting in fostering um and you know what do you think you've been someone that's been on both sides of this field and this is what i this is what i think and then the more they talk to me i'm like oh my gosh you 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 match families you place children in homes and you have no idea what you're signing up for you know i had, I had one person you know and i maybe i shouldn't go into all the you know details but sometimes it is a little alarming not to speak negatively of my colleagues the social workers because they truly are amazing and hardworking and have high caseloads um, but it is, but it is true that you can only understand what you know, and it is only other parents doing this work that can understand. It is so different when you come in and come out and you check on a kid and our family, and then you leave. It's different when you clock out in your home than when you're up in the middle of the night still, <laughs> you know, with, with yes, kids doing, yes. doing the work. So it is a different experience that you can only understand when you've been there. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And that's why I think whenever families can um, be a part of a support group or have um, foster parent mentors, it's so helpful. Um, absolutely. To um, learn from the wisdom and the experience of those who've done it, because if you haven't, it's, it's, you know, just like becoming a parent or starting a new job or, you know, changing schools, all of those things, we have expectations and ideas and hopes of what it will be like. And then it is what it is. And with each child, yeah. each family, each social worker, um, it's a different experience, different relationships, different um, details and scenarios that again, like no experience also of fostering or adopting will be exactly the same because we're all human beings and different and have different things that have happened to us and for our kiddos. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. yes. Absolutely. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add before we close? I think we've covered it all. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, well, Emily, I've really, uh, I've been looking forward to having this conversation and getting to record a podcast with you. And it was um, so helpful, but also just so informative. So thank you for your time and really um, helping us as resource parents and kinship caregivers um, see from a social worker perspective or the professionals also helping determine prudent parent law. And then from the parent perspective, even um, you bring all of that to this conversation and just knowing um, the goal and why the prudent parent law and guidance exists is really helpful um, to keep the child focus of normalcy for them is just great to hear. Um, I know I have some takeaways for my own parenting and I'm sure our listeners do as well. So thank you again. Yes, you're so welcome. Thank you for listening to the Help One Child podcast. We hope that you found helpful insights and practical parenting tips from your time with us. See you next time.